Welcome, and thank you for listening to this special Christmas presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following Christmas lecture was presented on the 11th of December, 2018, by Professor Janet Soskis, Professor of Philosophical Theology at the University of Cambridge, as part of the Usha Lecture Series. The lecture is entitled, Christ, the Light of Our Lives, or What Did the Ox and the Ass Get Out of Christmas? Thank you very much. Can I be heard? I'm always a bit, yes? I can, yeah, great. Uh, well, that's very generous, and it's lovely to be here, and thank you, Paul, for asking me, and to the Durham Center for Catholic Studies, which I've taken a great interest in. Uh, first thing I want to say, I, I really like Christmas. I like everything, the lights, the presents, song stories, of course, the food. We've already started, and I think that needs to be said at this time of year because great wafts of festival weariness have already subjected, come over us, haven't we? We've been subjected it to us. We, um, most of us, I assume here, are churchgoers, because why would you hike yourself all the way out here to hear a Christmas lecture? And we know that we are in the season of real Advent. But the harbingers of Christmas in our nation, and perhaps globally, seem now to be wholly secular. There's a kind of a fake Advent or a pseudo-Advent Advent about. And um, like the real Advent, Fake Advent has its signs and portents which awaken our joy and expectations. The newest um, portent of fake Advent is Black Friday, which is swept across the Atlantic on the internet. And so a decree has gone out from Wall Street that all people shall be enrolled to find the best deals for white goods and coffee makers. And so we all obey. And at about the same time, I've noticed, in late November, the first festive season opinion pieces appear in the what's called the quality dailies. These opinion pieces are, um, in my experience, resolutely depressing. They tell us how much we will all hate Christmas. Uh, the Sunday supplements and various op-eds tell us that Christmas is defined as that time of year when you discover how much you dislike your nearest and dearest and how little you had in common with them anyway. I have a theory that all journalists have a festive piece, a sort of fake Advent piece like this in their bottom drawer, and that somehow, like swallows that fly south for the winter, they bring it out in November, some kind of original take on Christmas. Here's something they think that won't have occurred to them. It's a kind of advanced cold shower of Scroogeism. Well, after nine or 10 years of reading such dystopic pieces, I'm afraid their power to startle is slightly worn off on me. Although, of course, there is truth in what the journalists say. Although I think I would put the pain of having to have another glass of Prosecco with Aunt V low down on the list compared to the difficulties of the season for those who find themselves alone or recently bereaved or the alcoholics or the homeless or those close to the alcoholics or the homeless or those suffering in other ways. The barrage of advertising about food and clothes and gifts means a shower of pain and guilt for families or single parent families who are just struggling to get by.
The buy your way to joy spirit that informs Black Friday is a cruel creed for those struggling to make ends meet. And no wonder some people say that we should get rid of Christmas. Well, we've already largely done that. At least Christmas has been cleansed in the public realm of all of its, almost all of its religious associations. I think this is now so extensive that we barely notice it. Last year, Marks and Spencers, who sort of stand out as a purveyor of public rectitude in the commercial square, marketed a, a festive version of Percy Pig sweets, which are an excellent sweet, I hasten to say, in bags which showed Percy in a Santa Claus hat with the banner heading, Merry Percy Mass. Now, what bright spark in advertising thought it would be a simple thing to cut and paste to just take Christ out of Christmas and replace it with Percy, Percy Pig. I mean, we don't even notice. Though this is piped festive music, festive songs. I see that, I saw on the way coming up here that now Alexa has a Christmas music selection. I, I'm, I'm longing to hear what it might be. Not really, I'm a bit worried. Because I first became conscious of piped festive music when I was spending some months on sabbatical in the United States. And there, immediately after Thanksgiving and Black Friday, festive music was everywhere in public spaces, shopping malls, supermarkets, gas stations, and everywhere it was both Christmassy, but totally without Christ or God. I suspect, and I'm pretty sure, this is because of the separation of church and state in the United States. You can't have distinctly Christian songs played in public places. So merchandisers have loops of this distinctive genre of secular Christmas songs, specific to Christmas itself, but with no mention of stars, mangers, or Bethlehem. Instead, you get a steady stream of jingle bells, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus, or its slightly more risque cousin, Santa Baby, hurry down the chimney tonight, as famously sung by Marilyn Monroe. The manger, the star, and the angel are only hinted at in general messages of goodwill, such as, do they know it's Christmas? In Britain, not needing to separate church and state, these festive tunes have been liberally mixed with Advent hymns and carols until that is recently. And you see here you see my paranoia. Last year, I thought I detected a sinister tendency in Sainsbury's. Festive songs were prominent in their pipe music, but the carols, at least those with overtly Christian lyrics, like once in Royal David's City, were played only as instrumentals. Lyrics accompanied the festive songs, like Jingle Bells, but once you got to the religious ones, like Once in Royal David City, it was just an instrumental. Now, I'd like to know about this, and if any of you are on the board of Sainsbury's, perhaps you can tell me. Is this a deliberate self-policing, or do they source their seasonal mu music loops from the United States? And the clothes shop next seems to have only secular songs. I mean, perhaps this is all innocent. Perhaps I might say it's not the song so much as the hectic atmosphere of expectation and longing that's generated by all this seasonal promotion of food and gifts, cosmetics, colognes, that we 
accompanies this time of year. It seems to me to be a parody of the season of the church's year in which we prepare for Christmas, which is, of course, Advent. Advent, historically at least, was a somber season with fastings and limitations on bells and church music. We are looking forward to the coming of Christmas, of course, and the birth of our Savior, but also to the second coming of our Lord. It's the season of now and not yet. And the beloved Advent anthems that we sing are full of this longing and desire and accompanying them a sense of pain for what is longed for but not yet fully with us. Things are not what they should be. My favorite, and I'm sure many of yours, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, rehearses the traditional O antiphons of the church's liturgy in a sequence beseeching our God to come and deliver us, naming Jesus with the prophetic Old Testament names of the Savior. O come, thou wisdom from on high. O come, Adonai. O come, David's key, root of Jesse. All of which anchor our Christian faith in the promises to Israel. O come, thou wisdom of the sky, who madest all in earth and sky. What seems to me irredeemably lost in the festive songs and the de-Christmified Christmas music, if we can say that, like Jingle Bell Rock or I Saw Mummy Kissing Santa Claus, is any deep sense of loss and longing that we get in the real Advent hymns and indeed in Carol's Christmas. For the Christmas carols, too, while proclaiming the arrival of light and peace, begin often in darkness and sorrow and suffering, whether metaphorical or real, or both. Christina Rossetti's Victorian poem catches something traditional and primal. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. In O Little Town of Bethlehem, we sing that the hopes and fears of all the years pressed down upon the city in its silent, quiet darkness. And in the lyrics of It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, the heavenly music of the angels floats over a weary world. It came upon a midnight clear, with, yet, yet with woes and strife, the world has suffered long, Beneath the angel stream have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. My mother, who was not much of a churchgoer goer, or notably religious, had nevertheless a great fondness for a 19th century French Christmas song we may know, O Holy Night. When I was younger, this, I have to confess, used to irritate me perhaps because my mother's favorite version was sung throatily by a coloratura soprano. And I can still see in my mind's eye my mother swaying slightly on a sofa, a sherry in one hand. She was not a great drinker, but this was Christmas, with this song throbbing emotionally through the air. 
I have since repented of these juvenile judgmental thoughts, not least because I reflected on the lyrics. Oh, holy night, it begins. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born. My mother was someone who had known a fair amount of sadness in her life and had been through some deep depressions. And this evocation of a world that lay pining in sin and sorrow uh, spoke to her, as did the thrill of hope and the weary world rejoicing and the idea that yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And this too is what grieves me about the festive songs, the de-Christianized Christmas music. It tries to keep all the merriment, the festivity, but eliminates the sorrow, the discontent, the awareness that our world is not what it should be. Or rather, is it the case that, in a sense, the longing and desire for wholeness remains, but in a commercialized parody? Our longing should now be for Chanel number no. five, or at least a little Christmas pudding. It promises hope, but can offer no real hope, that is, not beyond the Christmas pudding, not for a suffering world, just momentary respite for a few lucky homo sapiens who can sate themselves with food and drink. The promise of hectic happiness mediated by shower gel or handbags or flavored gin. But we all know these things can't bring happiness, even to ourselves, much less will a new shower gel bring joy to a weary world crossed by war, pain, and exile. Now, I have not yet spoken of the ox and ass, and I'm saving them. But another failure of our merchandised festive season is not that we simply consume too greedily and throw away too much, but that we forget that the promise of Christmas is not simply for the human race. The light which comes into the world is the light of the whole created order. The word through whom all things were made, as the prologue to John's gospel tells us, is the creator of all that is. And we see this anticipated already in the collect for the feast of Christ the King, the first Sunday of the church's year, the final Sunday, pardon me, of the church's year, which reads, Almighty and ever-living God, whose will is to restore all things. In your beloved Son, the King of the universe, grant, we pray, that the whole creation be set free from slavery, and set free from slavery to render your majesty service and ceaselessly proclaim your praise. It is a weary world, not just a bunch of weary men and women, who await the coming of the Lord, groaning in travail. Come, thou redeemer of the earth, begins another Christmas carol. And as at the crucifixion, when the earth shook and the sky darkened, um, as at the crucifixion of the word made flesh, so at the nativity the whole of the created order seems to be affected. 
we tend to focus on human beings, the shepherds, the magi, Mary and Joseph. But in the narrative, the stars, the angels, which are also creatures, rejoice at the coming of the Lord. This is the coming of the Lord, Adonai, creator of heaven and earth, in the flesh, dwelling and tabernacling amongst us, and needless to say, if amongst us, amongst the other creatures, fulfilling ancient promises as in Isaiah for cleansing and renewal. Rorate celli desuper et nubis pluent justum. Drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour forth righteousness. The prophetic passages favored by the early Christians and by the biblical authors themselves speak of hills and valleys rejoicing, but also of earth suffering because of human transgression and sin, and especially the failure of rulers to govern with justice and peace, and so to the ox and the ass. Um, this first slide, uh, which was found by the wonderful people at the, at the center here, is Bernardo Dadi. And here you see, of the 11 creatures clustered around the manger, where the word is made flesh, um, and to be laid in swaddling bands, Eight of them are angels, which I remind you are creatures. Two are animals, the ox and the ass, also creatures. And only one, the Virgin Mary, also a creature, is a human being. The other creatures are venerating just as much as Mary herself. Here is a 15th century Dutch painting, which brings me to the other part of my title, Christ, the Light of Our Lives. Here. The light of the Christ child literally illuminates all around the manger, Mary and the angels especially, but though slightly dimmer, the ox and the ass. But I have to say that they're just as much illuminated as Joseph, who always draws the short straw on this occasion, I'm afraid to say. This is a medieval Armenian painting of 1430. Here, the ox and the ass actually crowd out the angels um, which are up above. And I'm not sure who the male figure on the left is. It could be a king. Um, it, seems to have, it seems unusual that Joseph would have a sword, but there you go. In the Hebrew Bible, remember, the Redeemer is also the Creator. The one who creates can redeem. It is only the Creator who can redeem. And the Creator is not the, just the Creator of human beings, but of the whole world, of ox and ass and hills and valleys, stars, Sheep. So what about the ox and the ass? Last year, I found and bought in an Oxfam shop an eccentric set of crash figures made of plastic, clearly of Eastern European origin, and one that had seen better days. What was striking about this um, was the absence of the ox and the ass and the presence instead of a bear a fox, a rabbit, and a deer with very wonky legs and cross eyes. Nice, I thought, initially, that other animals get a look in, especially someone hailing from Western Canada, where bears and foxes and rabbits and deer are much more common than oxes and ass. But it reminded me that, classically, it's, it's not only sometimes, but always the ox and the ass. There may be the sheep in the hinterland, 
but it's the ox and the ass at the manger. Famously, St. Francis, uh, whose dates are in, in, in the late 12th and early 13th century, was the first person to stage a creche. And St. Bonaventure recalls this event in his life of the saint. It happened in the third year before his death, so 1233, that in order to incite the inhabitants of Grazio to commemorate the nativity of the infant Jesus with great devotion, Francis determined to keep it with all possible solemnity. And lest he should be accused of lightness or novelty, he asked and obtained the permission of the sovereign pontiff. And then he prepared a manger and brought hay and an ox and an ass to the place appointed. He told a friend that he brought the ox and the ass because he wanted it to be just as it was on that first Christmas night. But where did St. Francis get that idea? There's no mention of the ox or the ass in any of the biblical birth narratives. Yet, they are central to the historical Christian representations of the scene. As Pope Benedict notes in his really excellent book on the birth narratives, and if you want to read one good Christmas book, I recommend this, um, Pope Benedict's book on the birth narratives. There he says, no representation of the crib is complete without the ox and the ass. And the answer to their presence lies in the historical conflation of two texts from the Hebrew Bible, which were read by the early church's prophetic. Isaiah 1.3, where we read, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. And then, this is probably conflated with the Greek of the Septuagint of Habakkuk, in the middle of two living things, you will make yourself known. When the years draw near, you will be recognized. When the time comes, you will appear. St. Francis may have been the first to set up a physical crib with live ox and ass, but they were present to the Christian imaginary I've discovered long before him. And speaking to various people, even medievalists and art historians, this this seems to be, you know, quite a surprising thing. Here is um, a Psalter of um, the around 1223, certainly produced before Francis made his living crush anyway, the Psalter of King Louis and Blanche of Castile. And um, you see there in the top, uh, along with a prominent axe and, uh, ox and ass, um, um, right at, you know, looking in, peering deeply into the manger, um, a number below, a number of jaunty collection, really, of sheep and even a goat eating a tree with the shepherds below. Here is a Byzantine image um, which antedates Francis by a long time. This is dated to about 980. Note that, um, as in the previous image, the sheep accompanying the shepherd are just being sheep. You know, they're doing that sheepish thing of eating stuff. While the ox and the ass seem to display an attentive rapture. They're really engrossed in that child. In fact, if I was that child's mother, I'd be a bit worried. <laughs> this is even more evident in the ceiling panel. This is an independent panel of the 12th century where there's no human beings whatsoever. Um, the, no Mary, no Joseph, just the ox and the ass, gazing in wonderment at the child. Now, this is an interesting contrast with a lot of the representations of animals in Christian art, 
The ones that I'm most familiar with are those that come in representations of Moses in the burning bush. Here we have a late and western image. Um, it's a Dutch one from the mid-15th century, attributed to Dirk Boots. And you see that, um, well, on the right, you see Moses taking off his, his shoes. And there are the sheep. They couldn't care less. Um, and uh, God, speaking from the burning bush, God here is Christ. This was a standard identification because wherever the word speaks to us, that word is Christ. But the important thing I want to draw your attention to here is the indifference of the animals to any kind of spiritual disclosure. And here, uh, again, a rather late icon of the 16th century from St. Catherine's at Mount Sinai. Um, but similarly, as in most of the icons of the burning bush in the Orthodox tradition, the sheep are entirely indifferent. And that's important because the disclosure was to Moses. There you see, um, if you're interested, Mo uh, Mary in the middle of the burning bush holding the Christ child in her abdomen, and that's classical Eastern Orthodox understanding that Mary uh, is conflated with the burning, the burning bush because she is the one who held the word made flesh. But this attentiveness of the ox and the ass is remarkable. Here's another early pre-Francis um, image from a manuscript of the 11th and 12th century. There's no um, human figures with Mary, not even Joseph, but the ox and the ass. And here uh, you see that they are breathing on the Christ child. And some of the apocryphal gospels had it that, um, or legends had it that the animals kept the Christ child warm with their breath. Here's a, a Venetian manuscript of 1370, where I have to say the child faintly alarmed, as perhaps. <laughs> um, I think the, the uh, intention here is the ox and the ass are breathing over the Christ child. In any case, they're, they're not just being sheep. They're not just doing what ox and ass normally do. Not that I claim to have great biological knowledge of them, but I don't think they tend to go for babies in this way. Here's a mosaic, an early one, 11th century, in a Greek church, so an Eastern image. Uh, it's a very busy scene, but I hope you can see it's rather hard. Um, the, there you see, right next to the manger, the ox and the ass, just absolutely focused on the child. And this is an English manuscript of about 1300, the ox and the ass, looking into an empty manger. Um, this has the iconography of a tomb, you've probably heard in previous Christmas lectures, that often these medieval paintings represent the manger as simultaneously a tomb to catch for word the destiny of the child. Okay, this one is, um, this is the English altar frontal from about 1325 with a, a very lively baby. Notice that the light is shining from him, um, making his swaddling bands transparent. This is the light of the world and he's playing with the dove. And the, um, similarly, the attentive animals, you can't really see them there, I'm afraid I've cut them out, but in the wider thing, they are, they are there looking on. This is Polish from about 1152, again, pre-Francis, a bronze and wooden door, which has Mary um, asleep under a coverlet, as she might be. Um, I'm sorry, it's kind of grubby. But you see up in the upper right, the ox and the ass babysitting while she has a snooze. And this is an even older 11th century manuscript. 
you see how prominent these animals are? Here is an English example from the nave of York Minster, probably from around 1340. And a very early one from the 9th to 10th century, uh, a Gospel of Matthew manuscript, um, no, pardon me, an enamel um, from possibly from the short, and again, uh, rather crudely defined miniature, but the heads of these very attentive animals. This is um, an even earlier item. We've got, we're now at least 500 years before Francis. We've got the, this is an ivory and silver book frontal, a cover um, uh, of about 450 to 500, and the ox and the ass are right at the top. And you see them there again. Joseph and Mary sometimes are just seeing this taking a break with the ox and the ass carrying on. And here, possibly most striking, an early Christian sarcophagus in the Roman style from Arles, possibly from the 5th century. Um, the ox and the ass are there, and below them the three kings wearing Phrygian caps pointing to the star. There's an even more striking sarcophagus at the Basilica of St. Ambrose in Milan, which dates to 400. It's clearly Roman Christian, which has the ox and the ass in this way. But I couldn't find a visual of it that I could use. So this goes right back, way before St. Francis. The earliest textual reference that's been preserved about the ox and the ass at the manger is in origin, the uh, North African theologian from Alexandria, the second late 2nd and early 3rd century, who talks about this in his 13th homily on the Gospel of Luke and cites the Isaiah prophecy, Isaiah 1.3, as I mentioned, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. And he cites this as though it's an accepted prophecy. And he glosses it, as Origen is wont to do, he allegorizes it and thinks that the ox, a clean animal, signifies Israel, whereas the ass, an unclean animal, signifies the Gentiles who also will know the Lord on his appearing. So St. Francis, by the time we get to him, some 900 years later, just assumes, just assumes the ox and the ass are actually there, but he, they're not there in the scripture. They're there through a long tradition of Christian piety. And what interests me in this long tradition of piety, as represented in works of art and architecture, and indeed in verse, is the conviction that the birth of the Savior is, is of real interest to creatures other than human beings. Now, what about sin? The same carols which I've cited with approbation talk about Jesus entering the world to cast out our sin. Does he cast out the sin of animals, you might ask? And I would say not, or not in the same way. The animals, I don't think, sin. But if sinless in themselves, they still inhabit, as we do, a weary world, a world scarred by wars and greed and even more, and they suffer from it. In fact, the blood-curdling imagery of a passage like Isaiah 24, where the prophet speaks of the earth is utterly broken, the world is languishing and withered, the earth is lying polluted under its inhabitants, probably speaks more to this generation than to many of any generation before us. And I think in a curious way, so does the rather unfashionable doctrine of original sin. 
Now, I wouldn't want to abdicate the full Augustinian sexualized version of this doctrine, but we only have to watch one David Attenborough program or one program about plastic in our oceans to be struck how deeply we're all implicated in the disorder affecting our planet. No one is just. No, not one. Who would have thought that wearing a fleece jacket could bring on the devastations of our oceans? I think we all thought we were just happily recycling plastic bottles. The ox and the ass may not sin, but they are certainly, as are all creatures, subjected to the effects of sin and disorder in our world. And the key here, Pope Benedict brings out, is relationship. Man, he says, is a relational being. And if his first fundamental, fundamental relationship is disturbed, his relationship with God, then nothing else can truly be in order. As he points out, with that re reference to the healing of the paralytic, who, if you remember, asked for healing, but was told, your sins are forgiven, the forgiveness of sins is the primary foundation of all true healing. For us, we may say, and for our weary world. And we can add to Pope Benedict's remarks, those of Pope Francis from Laudato Si, his encyclical on our care for the common, our common home. Beginning with reflection on the Trinity, he says that the world is a web of relationship, creatures, tend towards God, and in turn it is proper to every living being to tend towards other things, so that throughout the universe we can find any number of constant and secretly interwoven relationships. And this leads us not only to marvel at the manifold connections existing amongst creatures, but also to discover the key of our own fulfillment. The human person grows more, matures more, and is sanctified more to the extent that he or she enters into relationships, going out from themselves to live in communion with God and with all other creatures. In this way, they make their own Trinitarian dynamism, which God imprinted with them with when they were created. These words can speak to us now. We do not know how this world of sin can be righted, but we have no less grounds for hope than did previous generations of Christians. And as Carmody Gray of this university has written, the Christian voice has something to offer completely lacking in the secular animal rights movements. These suggest, suggest are prone to a dangerous sentimentality, only identifying those animals close to us, at least fictively, emotionally, but they cannot seriously protest the brutal violence and suffering we see in nature, random, cruel, and full of death. Christians can see the natural suffering of animals as an aspect of this fallenness of this world, their subjection to fertility, as Paul says. But also in his letter to the Colossians, we believe this to be a world where Christ is the firstborn of creation, the one through whom all things were made and through whom things will be made new. This subjection to fertility is not how things should be. The God who made and loves all that is and said it was good is this God, Emmanuel, God with us. And if Christ, the creator and the light of our lives, is so, then per impossible he must also be the light of the lives of his other 
beloved creatures. We need hope, not hope for a new hairdryer or a digital TV or a staple gun, but hope on a cosmic scale that is at the same time entirely particular and local. Not just anarchic and pointless festivity, but God with us now, where we live and move and try to make a difference in the wounded world. To bring us nearer to home, I'm afraid not Northumberland, but at least Anglo-Saxon um, from Merseyside. This is a 9th century um, or mid-10th century ivory. Oh, it's a walrus ivory from Merseyside. And um, you see there Mary lying humbly, exhausted apparently, although um, uh, um, without pain, yes, assorted, and beneath her watching the child, the ox and the ass. When I was a child, a poorly catechized child of a not very religious West Coast Canadian family, I recall, insofar as I thought about God, having a notion of God and God's relationship to the world, rather like the relationship I had with the terrarium we had in my grade school class. This was a desolate plastic box that housed um, a little sand, some water, a plastic island, a plastic palm tree, and one tiny living but desperate turtle. Um, I could look down into it as I imagined at that time God could look down into the world. Perhaps God could turn the turtle over if it got caught on its back or drop in a few pellets of turtle food. Now, my picture of God was both too big and too small, or really, it was just completely wrong. And my God was more like a giant wizard, a Richard Dawkins God, perhaps. And what needed to happen was a reversal of the picture. The solvents see God as this immense emperor lording over things remote from the tiny king, his tiny creatures, comes when we peer quietly at a nativity scene Perhaps one of those physical, very developed French or Italian set pieces that you see, where you have a, a miniature world that has water wheels and shepherds and bakers and millers and geese and ponds and chickens and ducks and children, as well as tucked amongst them, almost hidden. You have to look a manger, a stable, an ox, an ass. We have to look hard to see our God, because our God comes hidden. Not single and special, but hidden in plain sight in the midst of us to a particular mother and a particular little town. He comes not as an emperor to a palace or a temple, but as a baby helpless in a manger and attending him his puzzled human parents, full of hope and fear as to how this can be, but also venerating and also venturing with them, and perhaps without the anxiety of their human counterparts, we see the ox and the ass. <laughs>